And welcome once again to Swing Thoughts, the uh, only show about the mental performance side of golf that isn't uh, super cheesy and stupid and filled with a bunch of golf cliches and uh, isn't hosted by guys that, you know, you'd never hang out with. Uh, It's hosted by Humble Howard. That's me, you know, world famous, uh, legendary broadcaster. I mean, let's be serious. I don't even serious. If we're being completely honest, why am I doing this? Um, <laughs> you know what I like? About, what I really like with this show is we don't make any judgments um, about Tim anything, o- not even about ourselves. Bullshit. Well, we make judgments. Please, everybody makes judgments. Tim O'Connor is a super duper, uh, longtime golf writer, turned himself into a golf performance mental coach. Still right though. Do you? Yeah, still right. Well, I like uh, I like to say that you know Tim's one of those people that puts a lot of great words together about the game of golf, and if you've uh, ever had the opportunity to read some of his books and his articles, you know that he knows what he's talking about. Uh, welcome to episode, uh, I have no idea. Eight or nine. It's, it's, well, listen, we've Eight been doing nine. this now for a couple months, Yeah. and it's interesting because on the phone, you can hear a little bit of phone sound. It's because uh, one of our very first guests, if not our first guest, in our... Numero uno. But it was like a practice show. We did the show... We had this great conversation with this world-renowned mental performance coach, and he was fantastic. We uh, were just finding our way. We're hitting we, two putts every green. We weren't uh, the irreverent, uh, well-oiled machine <laughs> that you hear now. Uh, anyone listening to the show knows uh, that we're enjoying uh, talking about this part of the game. Someone asked me recently why I'm doing this, and I said, well, because on my regular show, I almost never get to talk about golf, although once in a while it comes up. And I think, you know, for me, once a week I get to sort of nerd out or geek out about the game I love with a, a guy that I respect and uh, Tim O'Connor uh, helping a lot of people, myself included, and friends of mine in the mental performance side. And so that's why I'm doing it. Why you're doing it because you want to become a world-renowned coach, much like our first guest today. Oh, no, no. I do it because of... Uh it feels good. Yeah. It feels good. But no, we're uh, Are we're you taller fun. than were you taller you taller right now? Did you move that chair up? I did. I did. I feel tall, but I'm in good posture. Yes, you that, are. I know from working with people like Paul Doolin to stay in good posture. Paul Doolin has been uh Helping people in golf for over 20 years. His clients include players from all the big tours, PGA, European, LPGA, Ryder Cup members, and, and so forth. He um, spends a, a large portion of his time as the uh, mental performance uh, director at Core Golf Academy in Orlando, Florida, and is a certified trainer of neuro-linguistic programming. And um, one thing I'll say about Paul before he starts talking is he's a lot bigger in person than you'd expect him to be. I find it a bit... Whenever I'm near Paul, I'm just, I feel like a child. Is it a height thing? What's well, height? And he's, he's just a big... He's a big personality. And uh, so it's always a pleasure to welcome to any conversation about golf, Paul Dooland. How do you like that for an Hello, introduction? Did you, did you enjoy that introduction of yourself there? I was uh, thinking about coming on with a very squeaky, mousy voice just to uh, make, make you look silly. But uh, thank you for that. And, yes, larger than life in terms of poundage, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to correct my diet a little bit to uh, counteract that. You know, I remember I talked to Paul from the summer of 2014 for almost a solid year on Skype and on the phone. I would say fairly regularly, the first couple of months quite often, and then every so often after that. And then I finally got to meet Paul last summer 
for the first time in person. And I don't know, remember the first couple of minutes I was all freaked out because I'm like, Doolin, I had no idea you were a large person like myself. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's, uh, it's, it's nothing I can do to control that, but... Uh He's being, Thank you for the compliment, I guess. It means musculature as well, but also just the gravitas that you carry yourself. Exactly. You're a big... Pre- I'm trying to say you're a big presence, and you've certainly been That's a big... It. You've been a big presence in my life. Uh, you sort of started me down a path. I had been reading and studying the mental side of golf for as long as I can remember. I've read every book you can name, but Paul was the first person, Tim being the second, that I ever had a chance to talk to as a golfer, whatever my handicap level is, isn't really as important as the idea that it, for, for me, it was a real shift in, you know, you can read everything you want, whether it's Rotella or, you know, Gio Valente or whatever I call them, uh, Gio Vanelli. Cars, <laughs> cars are cooler in the shade or something? Um, you, can re- you can read all you want about the mental side, but it's, it's, it's interesting just, when, just, just as you can read any, you know, lots of instruction about your golf swing, but when you get to talk to somebody in person, for me it was a bit of a, a shift and a revelation. So I want to start there with you, Paul. Um, everyone can get their head around, or most golfers can get their head around taking a golf lesson. Although we all run into people from time to time and go, oh, you know, I've never taken a lesson in my life. But what about getting your head around, no pun intended, speaking to someone like you? What do you, what do you think? Is, is it a big shift for most golfers to, to finally say to themselves, I need to go talk to somebody? Well, the, the difference to me isn't in, in the information being made available. I mean, you know, if you know, as a coach, we have to you know do a good job of helping people understand the principles of what they're trying to learn in in, in a simple way that they can remember. But more important is the feedback, um, because you know people will take a swing you know swing lesson and they don't know what they're doing wrong, but the coach can see it, give them the feedback, and then they can correct and do you know effective repetitions in their swing and. The mental game is a skill, and it's it's one thing to have the information. But if you know, if you can't, most of us are so immersed in our own behavior that we're not aware of things we're doing that you know aren't aren't going to support us moving forward. So, if you have the feedback for people to be able to say, okay, here's what you're doing versus what you're supposed to do, and they kind of look at you and go, really, is that different? It's like, yep. And I'm sure anyone taking a golf lesson can, you know, you know, can relate because they'll be like, geez, I had no idea I was, you know, that far inside the line or whatever their, their problem is. Well, let me throw something at uh, Tim here, too. I just maybe both of you guys can react to this. You know, lots of guys that have maybe seen their swing on tape for the first time or sometimes those of us, you know, once in a while you, you'll watch your swing and go, gosh, I, I thought I was doing so much better than that. Really? That far inside? No, exactly. Really? I, I got to lose some more weight. Um, <laughs> is it that way when, when, when somebody has a chance to see or get some feedback or see their sort of mental swing? Is it just as ugly for a lot of people? Uh, <laughs> it can be pretty humbling for sure. Uh, it's... Uh, the hard part is like there's varying degrees of self-awareness in all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, by meaning meaning self-awareness, meaning be aware of what we're doing while we're doing it. Sort of having almost an observer's perspective on ourselves. Some people are really good at it, and those are the ones that you know don't need a ton of coaching. The ones that aren't self-aware, they just fall into you know habitual patterns without even actually knowing they're doing it. Um, that's those. Those are the ones that really need the feedback um, on a consistent basis. Yeah, I like what you're saying about the observer. 
And to me, that's that's the key part. Is that that uh, yeah, self-aware people can see what they're what they're doing, but it really helps to have someone else along for the ride to see and provide perspective. And to me, usually, what the relationship is about is an exploration. And it'll, the coach is able to just kind of go, okay, you know, what's really going on there? And, and most people don't have that presence of mind. Well, let me ask you, really though, can, what's going on can you there. answer the question I asked Paul? Like, what, what is it when you're, te- when you're helping somebody, you're coaching somebody, and maybe it's for the first time to reflect back on them, that picture of their mental golf swing. And for a lot of us, it's not a very pleasant thing sometimes. Sometimes it's not, but most people know what they need to work on. They know themselves. So what I do is I just I try to show themselves to themselves by mm-hmm. bringing things out. And so, okay, have you taken a look at this? And go, well, yeah, well, okay. Is that something you think you need to work on? And they go, well, yeah, I have been working on it. Well, why not? Well, for this, this, and this reason, because I think I need to do this or... You know, I get going down that road and I feel frustrated, so I do something else. So the role of the coach, I really think, is to bring up the parts of people that actually they probably know about themselves, but they don't really want to. Work and and maybe they don't. Have, they know. They know somewhere in, instinctively, or they know just below the conscious level that, that this how they're behaving on the golf course, like a lot of things in life, isn't serving them. But Doolin, when we first started working together. I mean, I remember the first couple of sessions, and we were both on our computers. We were Skyping, and you were showing me material. Um, I don't know how long after talking to me or hearing my laments about where I was in my golf game at that time that you and I started to talk about these techniques. So here's my question, and this you guys can both answer this. Is it something where you go... I have a set of um, principles that I apply to every golfer, or I listen to different golfers and apply what I think are the principles they need most. So you go ahead first, Polly. Yeah, everyone's different for sure. And, you know, there are basic principles that apply to all of us. You know, that's kind of like the same thing. It's like, you know, we all need, you know, air, water, you know, food, that type of thing. Those are principles that, um, online, that, that work for all of us. Online porn. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was, is that not a, that not part of the hierarchy of needs for you two? Uh, that yes, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, okay. Um, so accessible. Um, <laughs> I, well, you, you, I, I tell you, what, I wonder what if you did. A, a, it would be interesting to see what there is more of is uh, ways to hit a bunker shot or yoga porn. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> I'm just so proud because I probably quite a few of the juniors I work with are going to listen in on this, and their parents are going to cut me off. So, congratulations! Uh, yeah, I keep, for, I keep forgetting that you two actually have real jobs. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just an idiot doing. I'm just an idiot doing this on the weekends. Okay, so let's talk about applying print. Oh yeah, like your like your juniors aren't searching porn. Get your heads out of your ass, coaches. Um, listen, <laughs> remember you used to just be eating this catalog, right? Um, let's go uh, to Paul. Doolin now for the win. Um, so everyone... What, what, everyone, everyone, what was the question again? <laughs> I don't even remember. Everyone has certain needs. Uh, the high, I, I, I always remember who it is. It's not Pavlov's. It's, um, there's, a, there's the guy that created that... Uh, Maslow? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The, right. Um, so beyond those needs, Paul, you're saying when you look at a golfer, everyone's different. Some people have certain strengths and weaknesses. Some people are like, you know, they're brought up in an environment where some of those principles are just sort of inherent in their upbringing. Some of some have just, you know, come by it by the luck of genetics or whatever. Um, but for the most part, it's all, these things are all skills, whether we adopt them from our environment or we have to work on them ourselves and overcome, 
some older habits. Either way, uh, yes, there are certain key principles that apply to everyone, but not everyone needs them because they've already established them in whatever way. That's sort of the, the short answer. Yeah, there's, the, everyone needs basic fundamentals uh, in in their mental game and, and performance. Just in terms of like, they you need to drink water, you need to be rested, you need to have good nutrition. But it depends on the type of person, what kind of coaching they really need. You have like really hard wired people, double A personalities. Well, their needs around what for their golf game are much different than someone who's just really loosey-goosey. One thing I think both of you uh, say, and I think you can agree on, and I'm in the unique position of having been coached by both of you, is that there is, and, and Paul mentioned it a few minutes ago, you have to practice it just like you practice your short game. It's not some kind of you know magic you know, pill, you go see Paul Doolin or Tim O'Connor, and, and you're going to be great the next day. It is something that you need to practice. And I think back to my original point about somebody gets to a, a stage in their golf life, whether they're a, a player like me that wants to play tournaments or somebody who wants to enjoy the game more. They come to Paul Doolin, and you get them set up, or Tim, and you guys get them set up on a program of mindfulness, just like almost learning to practice meditation. It takes... You know, you need to be sort of daily or you need to be, every time you play, you need to be vigilant to those new set of principles, right? Yeah, one of the biggest mistakes I see people make, and this is back to the original point about, you know, reading a book versus getting the coaching, is they just think that once they know it, they should be able to do it because, you know, they think that, that the mental game is about knowing what to do versus mm-hmm. having the, the behaviors and habits hardwired into your into your system. And... Those are very different things, and it's like, yeah, I read that thing. I, I mean, hear it all the time. I read that thing. It didn't work very well, and it's like it did, it works fine. It's it's understanding that you have to adopt the, the the practices consistently and wrap the heck out of it. Well, it's interesting because the first time I ever spoke to a mental performance coach was uh, Paul Doolin, who we're on the phone with, and in nineteen twenty fourteen, that would have been honestly, guys. I started reading Rotella and all this, you know, some of this, I, I was looking through my, my mental books the other day. It's ridiculous what I have. But you're the first person I ever spoke to it, spoke to those ideas with. And it, it was immensely helpful because just as you said, I would read something and I'd try and put it into practice, you know, take dead aim. And, you know, if you're not, Rotella's thing, if you're not thinking about the target, what are you thinking about? But it wasn't until I got to talk to somebody and then put together a plan for myself that it really... I think made a, a, a real difference to how I conducted myself day to day on the golf course. Absolutely, it's a, these are skills that you need to work on over and over again. It's like uh, someone who habitually finds, like me being one, habitually getting ahead of myself. So I had to learn the skill of of centering, basically paying attention to my breathing. So I'd be in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a skill that I have to be aware of all the time. So I actually kept, I keep notes on, on what I'm working on. And one of those things is to come back to breathing so that when I start to get ahead of myself or I'm thinking back, I just get into my body and, and feel what's going on. And that makes me present. The other thing that a coach really does is he'll, he'll kind of like call you on it. And I remember like, so I wanted to just, interject a little bit here and say that uh, Paul, you've been a, a huge mentor for me and, and you know, I was well down the road on exploring this world of performance and learning skills and whatnot. but you and I engaged as kind of a, a um, teacher-student relationship and I blogged about it um, 
But I remember I was... Uh, How many years ago was that? That's about five, six, I think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Grew, yeah, yeah. And I remember... I was, I was back in Canada at the time, so... Yeah, yeah and I remember we played at, uh, at Brampton Golf Club, and... I hit a shank, which I still do from time to time, and I got mad. And you just you yelled over, "Stop!" And the key piece was what you played there was, other than just knowing something that I shouldn't say, invest my energy in it. You were able to almost like confront me and say, "Hey, here's the behavior, and if you invest your energy into this and think about this, you're going to go down a sorry road, pal." And so that, to me, is a key role that a coach plays, is that ability to hold someone to account or just to see what's going on and provide that, um, that piece of perspective. Yeah, there's the, um, when someone is in the middle of, a, let's call it a habit loop, and, and, and they're in the middle of something that's habitual and mostly unconscious, um, it's very difficult for them to, to stop that pattern. So you have to interrupt the pattern in the middle of it to start to, to, to break the, the, the flow through the neurology to right. make it sound really, you know, over, over technical, mm-hmm. but to, to break that, to, to break that, you have to interrupt it. And so, you know, it wasn't me just being a jerk and saying that it was like, stop. No. And then it, it, it gets, it starts to loosen off those neural connections. Right. And then you start to do new things in, in that pattern. Yeah, but to get, so to get back to the point that Howard was making, that's part of the role that a coach can play, is is that ability to see something and be able to to cause um, to stop the pattern from repeating itself. Well, as someone who's all not only been coached by both of you, but also has you know had some uh, experience with therapists, you know, part of what I found that's similar between you know sort of talking to somebody about bigger issues going on in your life other than the fact that you can't close the club championship um, <laughs> is it's just providing what you just said some feedback and a little bit of sort of checking in like one of the things I found different talking to Paul and now Tim versus just reading about it is you know again for the first few months that's why I began giving a little histories first few months that Paul and I worked together we were on the phone and on Skype quite a bit and and sort of talking over some of the things that I was trying to put into practice and seeing and Paul would check in on with me. Was it making a difference and was I enjoying, you know, the experience better? Because, you know, for me in 2014, I, I wasn't I wanted to get back into playing competitively, and but I wanted a roadmap to do it beyond just, you know, how my, you know, how my learning had to hit knockdown four irons. And so I thought the thing for me, Paul, that I, I think I want to get into, I want to get into some of the stuff that Paul's actually doing. But for me, having someone like you, it was the sort of week to week feedback. And I think that's what you do for your top players as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it, it's so easy to fall out of, you know, change patterns because, you know, number one, they're uncomfortable. Number two, it takes an extraordinary amount of energy, and some people need an external person to be a- accountable with, not two, because it's not my career I'm helping them build, it's theirs, but, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of keeping them on track, and, and it's, it's, they know themselves well enough that they need somebody just to do that. It might, sometimes they don't even, they know what they need to do, but they just need somebody to be, you know, partners within it. I mean, everybody, like, like we were saying earlier, everybody's different in terms of what they need. So, you know, I've, I've worked with guys where they didn't really want the information. They just wanted me to, you know, support them in doing the right things and just give them the feedback. And, and that's, that's the thing about coaching is you have to really, 
pay attention. Like a lot of us just want to get out there and just deliver our material. And that's a, that's only like maybe a quarter of the equation as far as, you know, coaching itself goes. Yeah, it's far more coaching than it is teaching. And I find that the way it's worked with my clients is that I, there's always this piece of like they come in and they got what I call the top line piece, the piece that's bugging them. And maybe it's from the last round or the last pra- practice session or stuff that's bugging them. So we do a little exploration into that. And then it's coming back to the work, the work that we've identified that you know are, is what they need to do and what they've agreed to do. So I agree with you 100% in terms of around that accountability. And group accountability is, is massive in terms of how you make change. So you're accountable to yourself, but if you've got someone else who's along on that journey with you, sure, it's just so much easier, as you were saying, to help that person keep on the track. So, Paul, can you um, just talk a little bit about, you know, what's... What's it like when you work with, uh, I, know, I know on your, the note you sent both of us, it says, you know, I'm working with four guys on the big boys tour. Um, and you also work with juniors. You also work with just regular idiots like me. So what is that, what is that like? Is it different working with a PGA tour player? And I think we mentioned on our, in one of our conversations, you work with uh, Kyle Stanley, right? Yeah, yeah, wonderful guy. What a what a what a great human being he is. Can you can you mention the other guys you work with on the tour? Um, I, I don't make a habit of it to be honest with you. Just just because you well, know, if you did it once, that's I, not I a habit, Paul. Of, Paul <laughs> if you only do it once, that's not a habit. Well, yes, this is a skill we're working <laughs> yeah. on here. If you mention it once, that would just be like some information. You know I me. Mean? I mean, I don't know how many times today you've been asked that, but that's fine. Okay, Kyle Stanley and some other big named tour players. Okay, there we go. There so we go. Again, is it, I, 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 for their for their privacy, I, 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 I keep that quiet. As much as it would be probably really good for <laughs> yeah. me marketing wise, um, I, I, I respect these guys so much that I just don't, you know, I, I, I just don't like to do that. And I, I, maybe, I think maybe it's funny. I'm making a mistake. I think it's funny that Paul also doesn't mention he works with me, but for completely different reasons. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, hey, I, I heard you work with Humble Howard. No, don't know him. Haven't heard of him. Yeah, your bio didn't say that former coach of Tim O'Connor. Um, so is it different? It, work- it's, one, it's one thing to have credibility from working with these guys. It's, it's another thing to lose credibility from working with people like <laughs> That's you. Right. Your people would be like, I had no idea you were, you'd stoop that low. Um, Why are you so stupid, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Are you, were you desperate? Do you need the money that bad? Um, Good Lord, this, this has turned into a com- just a comedy spot and nothing to do with Hey, I told you at the beginning of the show, I don't want to listen to a golf show with a bunch of nerdy dickheads. Swing Thoughts is a different show. This, um, we're, whoever's listening, why are you listening to this? Uh, you know, I'm telling show. you, this is a very popular... Hey, shut your face, big head. This is a very popular show. Hey, um, oh, yeah, good. now. Um, it's funny because Tim saw what I have. I have your name in my, uh, in my uh, contact list. Under Paul Golfhead Guy. <laughs> um, anyway, Doolin, let me ask you a question. Guru. Is it different than when you work with a PGA Tour player, would their concerns uh, be similar to the everyday player? And would the everyday player be surprised at just how similar golf is for everyone at every level? How's that for a very intelligent question? Tons of similarities and tons of differences. Um, people are probably more interested in the differences. So number one, um, these guys are as good as they are because they have they have massive amounts of discipline. 
um, to and and motivation to master the game. It's not. It's something. Some sometimes it's got things to do with you know sort of a natural disposition for the game and talent and that sort of thing. But the big difference I see in in these guys is that when when they understand the benefit of something and they commit to it, they do the work and they don't make excuses. Right. right. Well, part, um, and partly too, if I may jump in, they do the work because it's what they do for work. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and and so. You know, the, the, everybody. You know, everybody talks about professional versus amateurs, and a professional is someone who is, you know, really just they're they're objective about themselves enough that they just go, you know, whether I'm comfortable or not, I'm going to do things that make a difference. And so, that that's a huge difference in in in, in that that particular quality. Um, yeah, and, you know, the other thing is with, with these guys that make a living, you know, I have to apply the, the material that I use with professionals more than I do with, um, you know, regular amateurs because, you know, the risk of, of you know, my work affecting these guys in a, in a positive way is, or sorry, in a, in a negative way. If I do my job poorly, there's a bigger risk. And so I can't get caught up in that. And that, so that's like, you know, the difference between a pot on the green and the practice area and a putt on the green for a win so i actually have to apply the same principles that these guys are applying on the course because i could sit there and you know be you know really you know scared about you know what's in it for me you know it's like wow i might get fired if i screw this up or if i screw this guy up is his you know his paychecks are going to dwindle um and so that's uh, i have to do the work while i'm doing the work so if you know what i mean so you're living you're living what you're teaching you're you're the key for you is to walk your talk. Yeah, I, I, I've, you know, I've had to work at it really hard to make, you know, working with a guy like Kyle, similar to the way I would work with, let's say, Howard, um, because it's like I can't be effective if I treat it differently. And then, then that's, you know, one of the principles of the mental game is to, you know, stop, stop making things so important that it freaks you out. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and I've, I've. So that's that's one of the big the big differences in terms of me, um, and you know the, the the work environment is different. There's a lot of things going on, like uh, you know at the event. I'm actually in Tampa right now, and after we finish talking, I'm going over to uh, the Valspar. Yeah, and uh, you know that you know the environment's a little bit different. It's distracting. There's a lot going on, and you know, um, so so you don't get the same type of work done. That's another difference. Um, but uh, other than that, I mean, these guys are just. You wouldn't believe how normal these guys are as human beings. Like, you know, the television and all the, the, the press stuff and what's on the Internet makes these guys look like they're different from us. No, they're it's all artificial. From us other than they're massively skilled in golf. Yeah, I remember you said the uh, first time we had you on for our, our practice show is that these guys, they still have to, like, do their laundry. They have to deal with their partners off the course or the kids in school and stuff. Um, it's regular life for them. So back to a guy, yep. back to just a regular guy, whether he's a 15 or an 18 handicap or a low, you know, elite player or not. What is it? How do you get a person? I don't know how I'm going to ask this. Like if, if somebody is not doing this for a living, what's the accountability factor for me? Because I'm, you know, compulsive and obsessive. You know, I, I was very diligent in doing the, you know, the things you, you know, sort of we decided that would be good for me. And when you would check in with me, yes, I had done them. But what about you? Like, is it frustrating when you, you know, someone comes to see a, ostensibly because they think they could improve their experience and, and. What's the buy-in for them? How do you keep them at a, at a point like a professional doesn't need any motivation from you to do the work? 
I actually, you'd be surprised. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the, 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 a professional can be stuck because, you know, they're motivated in terms of golf, but the mental game, they've never been really motivated at it, and they've run into a roadblock, and they're not just, it's not a realm they like to pay attention to, mm-hmm. uh, but they need to. And that's sort of the problem is, like, the biggest weakness is the thing that feels the worst to practice. Exactly. And, and so, you know, the thing that's really important is, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the time they're intrinsically motivated to do these things. In other words, they don't need external factors to keep them going. But sometimes to become intrinsically motivated, you have to have something from the outside getting you into the groove until you you like it. I mean, I'll use exercise as an example. You know, I've got a love-hate relationship with, with that damn part of the, the world. And <laughs> when I once I'm in decent shape, I love going to the gym. But getting into decent shape, I need to be pushed. I need a, someone to, you know, poke me with a fork to get in there. Mm-hmm. But And so to establish uh, intrinsic motivation sometimes requires extrinsic motivation. Do you also find, Paul, that the people who come to you are the people who really want to do it, um, but the people who, maybe we say, need to do it, don't come to you? I think so that's, that's a great point. No, I think I think kind of the way it goes. I think that's a great point. In fact, as I was asking you my question, I was thinking, well. The fact is, if anyone got to the point where they called up Tim O'Connor or Paul Doolin, they're probably at a point whether they want to be a better player or they're not experiencing the game the way they'd like to. Yeah, that's fair to say, for sure. Just, just as you were uh, saying. But a, t- lot of, a, a lot of people are just, you know, they either come to you and they're in decent shape and want to get better, right. or, you know, there's, there's a real issue that they've just let go for so long that, you know, it's become a bit of a disaster for them. Well, it's just like you said about about getting into shape. I mean, you might be thinking for some time, man, I really need to get into shape. But until you take the step to go to a trainer and now you've got somebody that you're accountable to, um, it's, that's the biggest walk, you know, whether it's in, you know, in golf or in life. I mean, to make yourself realize you need to change something and then going to get some help is, it's a big gulf. Yeah, that's, that's sort of that, uh, you know, I guess people call it the come to Jesus or whatever it is. Yes, Jesus. Um, By the way, like Jesus to... <laughs> Jesus was a plus <laughs> two. They just found that out. They just found, they did. There was a Bible passage about Jesus playing some golf around Bethlehem uh, at the Bethlehem uh, Country Club, and he was a plus two, solid well, plus two. His swing just flowed, man. Never won the club championship, though. Because yeah, he, he, he had a tendency he had, to choke. He had anger. He had <laughs> anger issues. Remember yeah. the whole bit about him going into the temple, That's right. and Throwing everyone out. He had a tendency to. Okay, you know what? I'm trying to think of jokes to make, but I'm really cautious. About no, don't be. It's, hey, it's, they would get. This show's on the internet. Um, we could say lots of things on the internet. Although we do, we have stopped swearing since the first show because of uh, all the young children listening. But Paul, I think one of the key things that we're we're getting at here is that people don't like change. And like you were saying, it's like uh, most guys who go to the gym, they hate leg day because it hurts for a couple of days afterwards. So that's the one they don't want to do. And I think that's the same way in life and all parts of things in our golf game. We don't really want to go down those areas that we don't like because there's a little bit of pain there. And it's going to take some change and, and taking a really hard look. And no one wants to really do that. So what is that in golf? And when it comes to the mental performance side, we should talk about a couple of concrete things. What do you find your players don't like to do? What is the the crappy stuff? What are the bunker shots or practicing your chipping? Uh, Well, first of all, back to Tim's point. Um, Big difference between pain and discomfort. Pain and, you know, 
Um, discomfort is, you know, you know, for me, it would be going to the gym on a regular basis. Like, I don't like the way it feels, and I'm uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. But the pain is, you know, the pain that, that is the result of not going is worse than the discomfort of changing a habit or changing, you know, part of my physiology as far as being sore. So, that, you know, the pain in, the, the, the pain in golf is bad scores and not enjoying yourself versus discomfort is making the changes that would eventually eliminate the pain. So you're going to get one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I would always say that, you know, pain is permanent if you don't adopt discomfort, but if you adopt discomfort, it's temporary and then both go away. And then it's fun, just kind of a fun little way to look at that, right? So when you're working with a player though, moving to the next level of this, when you're working with somebody, whether it's Kyle Stanley or me or Tim, what have you found, like, well, everyone buys in at the beginning because we're all enthusiastic at the start of a project or the beginning of a weight loss or a, a new uh, training regime. But as time goes on, what do you find people fall back into? Uh, God, it's so different. It's different for everybody. In, in general, though, um, frustration. Frustration um, from the fact that things aren't going as fast as they would like. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where the motivation of, you know, the end result in the long term has to be, you know, always sort of hanging over their head um, because you have to remember why you're doing things. It's like in the middle of something that's uncomfortable and you're going, shit, I just want to quit this. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you have to remind yourself or be reminded why you're doing it and go, oh, yeah, that's it. Changing and, your behavior and, is just as hard as changing your golf swing, right? And people end up doing the same the same things over and over again. You address them for a while, move on to something else, and then that old piece that we thought we had dealt with comes up again. Yeah, and that's that's the frustration is that you know managing expectations in terms of you know what what it, what the timeline and um, the process really looks like is a big deal because if people think that you know oh I you know this is this is going to be pretty quick it makes sense and it's like no 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 wait you're going to hit yeah. some roadblocks you know I don't know what your roadblocks will be but you'll hit them mm-hmm. so be ready because you'll want to quit and all that stuff it's kind of like people go oh well now that I know that that's just a natural part of the process it's it's more plausible when they're in the middle of it instead of going you know this isn't working or I suck at this it's like oh wait that's the way it goes i mean i always refer back to you know, when we're kids and we're taught how to write. And, you know, how did that go for the first three months? Then, you know, it, it was sloppy and it didn't go well. And as kids, we just look at it and go, oh, I'm going to do it again. But as adults, we, you know, we judge the outcome and we right. have no expectation of the timeline and go, well, you know, this isn't going well. I quit. I'll go to another coach or I'll read another book. I'll go to another I'll go to another bike riding coach cuz my dad sucks at this. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can get into the, the Dave Pell's, you know, short game bike riding school. You know, if if we learn if we learn to walk or ride bikes uh, with the self as kids with the self-consciousness of adults, we'd all be crawling and just looking at these contraptions. Um, I want to before Paul goes, I want to talk about a couple of things that Paul has taught me or some of the, I mean, I'm assuming that these are some of the things you deal with, with all your players. And those are the concept of uh, direct control, influence, and no control. Um, yeah, maybe maybe you can talk a, a little bit about a that. Princi- that's a cornerstone principle. Absolutely. And so maybe you could explain to somebody listening who's got an 18 handicap why 
you know, thinking about golf in terms of the direct control, what you can influence, and the things you have no control might actually ease your pain of helicoptering your wedge into a pond. <laughs> so, what I see constantly at every level of the game that people get themselves emotionally involved in things they really don't fully control. And so, you know, there's the obvious things that you don't control weather or, you know, the course setup or, you know, the spike mark on the green or whatever. Those are the easy ones. It's the stuff that's sort of in the gray area, which I call influence, where you have some impact but not full impact. And people get confused about what they actually control. And when they realize it's like, oh, well, here's the simple list of things I actually can do something about and focus on that and judge myself against, you know, the quality of the work I'm doing in this area. Um, you extract the judgment from things you don't control. And, and I think Woody Allen said something like, if you want to be miserable, just set goals you don't control. So you don't control score, as an example. You don't control winning. You don't control how other people think about you on the golf course. Um, you do control your own behavior. You do control how you practice. You do control how you prepare for a round of golf. You do control what you put into your body. Um, and you do control your response to situations, which people <laughs> they tend to ignore all those things and pay attention to the things they don't control, and that's what makes this game so nutty. Right. Is because, you know, you're, you're, it's a, the game is a trap. It, it, is, it baits you into score. I mean, the whole notion of par, when, you know, when the game was invented, I doubt they said, okay, this is a par four. It's just like, you know, let's just see who can get the, the sheep shit in the hole in the, in the huge number of hits. <laughs> now that's right. Now you're getting this podcast thing. I'm, I'm getting it. I can, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to all my junior parents. They're, 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 they're uh, I'm teaching your kids they, that. They've said that word too. <laughs> so, so Paul, uh, what but, of, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. But see, you know, and, and, you know, with all the instruction and stuff, people get sort of obsessed with trying to, you know, perfect their swing. But, you know, here's something that really surprises a lot of people when I, when I say this, but you don't control your swing. You just control how you practice and your swing emerges as a byproduct. And, you know, even, you know, Ben Hogan and Moore Norman, and Tim, you wrote a book about Mo, so you know this better than I, you know, he, he, although he had pretty much, you know, looked like he had, you know, complete control over his swing and therefore his ball flight, no, no two balls went exactly the same. They went close to exactly. But so when, when you realize that it's like uh, what he did was just practice in a precise way, that conditioned his nervous system so that he could he come close to actually duplicating, you know, the swing. And again, no two swings have ever, ever, ever been the same. Never have been, never will be. But you can get it honed down through practice in the right way. Then that all of a sudden it's like, so all I can control is my practice. And when I get it on the golf course, um, you know, I can also, you know, develop my ability to respond to the situation. Uh, that I'm in, such as, you know, a tournament, so that that golf course is more, or that, sorry, the golf swing becomes more consistent because, you know, your your emotional state on the golf course affect is, affects the consistency of your golf swing. So it's not just the swing. And I'm kind of di digressing a bit no, here. No, 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 you're, you're, Before Tim jumps in, though, I just want people to understand what Paul's saying, which is, 
if you can find, and I've got the list we created two years ago, and, and my list has about, you know, five or seven things on the direct control and the influence in each, each category, but what people can understand from what Paul's saying is there are things you can put your attention to that will not only make you um, possibly score better, may not, but they will definitely make you happier because you'll feel at least good about the fact that you warmed up correctly, you you had good nutrition, you, you took care of your hum, your water, you, all that stuff. At least you did that. And then it's like, well, all that other stuff, you kind of give it up. And so here's, and here's the, the, the problem people, you know, can watch for in this is that the part of us that, well, you know, when everybody starts this game and you're just fascinated by the, by the you know, hey, I'm going to see if I can figure this out and learn it. And they become sort of engaged in the learning process. And then the ego jumps in and starts going, hey, there's score too. And as you get better, you expect more of yourself. And then more of your energy goes into the score, which you don't control. And that's the stuff that the problem is the ego likes the stuff it doesn't control. But the, the let's call it the soul of the golfer likes the stuff, likes doing the stuff, such as practicing and playing and just, you know, you know, doing the things we can control to the best of our ability. And the people that focus on what they can control because they're, fascinated by and enjoy it the most, uh, those are the people that are masters of it. And, and it's pretty simple, but, you know, getting, getting yourself into that place takes practice because that ego can be pretty tough to overcome. And so, you know, that's part of the work that uh, guys like Tim and I do is also help separate the ego out from the process so it doesn't have the same impact. That's what makes the, the ego is a part of us that makes us nervous out there. Absolutely, absolutely. So this, uh, you know, if the, the 15, 18 handicappers, uh, the last 10 minutes, I think, is some of the, the best stuff we've had on our show in terms of if you took what you've heard and applied this to your game, man, you would, uh, you'd, you'd have a lot more fun and a lot more freedom. But, Paul, what you're talking about was in terms of doing the work. So in terms of things that you can control, um, what types of things do you work on with your players about what they c- could control? Could one of those things be, say, process, uh, you know, that they have control over how many times they, they visualize out there or they're breathing? Is that the type of control you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, there's things, there's, there's two parts of the game. There's, um, you know, the stuff, there's the, the shot itself or the putt or whatever, and then there's this time in between. Um, so I call them a work in a, work in a recovery cycle. So the recovery cycles between shots, your job is to recover, and there's this whole process to that. And then there's the, then there's the work in terms of your shot, which is, you know, your routine. And so instead of, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest things is, you know, we talked about judgment a little bit at the beginning of this, and it's impossible to stop the judger in our brain from, from working. But what I like to start to get people to do is, instead of hitting a shot and then judging where it goes or the quality of your swing, judge whether or not, you know, the intent you set in terms of, let's say, having a practice swing, you make a practice swing and it's like, okay, there's the feel I'm committed to. And then as soon as you make a swing, make your primary judgment against that thing which you can control, which is how close did I get to my intended, my intended swing field? Did I commit to it? And judge that first, then judge where the ball goes second, and then you start to take the ego out of the equation. Right. You know, what you said, um, and we're going to wrap things up because we could do uh, hours and hours with Dooland, who is available. I don't even know if... Uh, do you have a, a place people can go and, and find out more about you? Are you even, do you even bother with that? 
I've, 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 I've have been talked into, I've, my website's just about developed. Okay. Um, I'm actually holding the process up because I, I need to get a couple things for the guy that's doing it. I finally have been talked into getting a website. Um, not because I'm against them, but because I've just been lazy. Well, and also, I just, I just, as a, I, I, I've told you this before, as a reference for people to go and find out more about you, it would be uh, definitely worthwhile. There's a couple things you said, though. The soul of the golfer. Um, the idea that, and I relate to that because I, I love to, I love so much about practicing golf that I can get lost in it. And I'm not sure that's, I think that a, a lot of us that play the game have that feeling from time to time. But it, it's it's funny. It, I, I'm often reminded how much I enjoy that as well as actually playing golf. And in fact, sometimes in my career, I've enjoyed practicing way more than playing. Yeah, and sometimes that's that's. There's two ways people do that. They they enjoy the the, the practice because it relieves them of the burden of outcome. Yes. Um, yeah. And and some people enjoy it because they just love the feeling of swinging the golf club. And you know, the, again, two different ways to do it, so to speak. Um, and just that's you know, just note, noteworthy for people to sort of say, which which am I? There's there's a there's also just. Getting out on a range and just hitting balls, like you said, and just enjoying the sun on your face and just going through it. But there's a big difference between those who tend to, you know, want to like overlearn it and get it right, and that's where golfers struggle in, in terms sure. of making it from the range to the course. Buddy, I've been on a range where I've been trying to get it right. Usually, and I've said this before on the show, where you know you can always tell the club championships coming to your course because you see guys on the range that you haven't seen practice all year. But um, one last thing. Last summer, so I finally meet Doolin in person, and we sat down. We spent a few hours at the uh, Core Golf Academy, and you know we, we finally did some work in person where we can actually hit some golf shots. But one of the things that we did that day is we, we did some neuro-linguistic uh, kind of feedback about breathing. Do you remember what, what was that thing that we were hooked up to? Uh, that's heart math. Heart uh, math. And waving. Yeah. And you were trying to get me to understand just how taking a, what they call in yoga, cleansing breath or a deep breath. Just talk a little bit about that. I want to tell you about a real life example of where I used that technique recently. I'm sorry, are you working for the Orlando garbage cleanup? What's going on there, sir? I'm embarrassed. I'm uh, I'm I'm running late now. Because okay. Almost gone longer, and I'm in an elevator, so that's fine. Um, you know, I <laughs> did you not think he was working? At I, was, I was hoping there wasn't going to be any noise, but I'm okay. leaving my hotel to go to the don't, court. So. Don't worry about it. You you know what? We'll pick this up another time. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry Val, guys. Valspar Championship. I'm, I'm having fun, actually. All right, dude. Well, listen, right. uh, we'll pick up the breathing. I'll, I'll talk about it on the show. Uh, Paul Doolin, uh, Core Golf Academy. Do you have any final thoughts for Paul, Mr. Big Shot? Uh, Paul, thanks for just helping me on my own journey, man. It's always great to connect. Uh, you've been a big support for me and a, and a mentor for a lot of other people, so thank you. No, the pleasure's all mine, guys. It's been, uh, it's been fun to uh, know you guys through the years and continue to do this together. It's fun. All right. um, and by the way, unlike our first show, the little practice show, this one will actually be put up on our, uh, we're on iTunes now and on, uh, you'll see it on Facebook. Thanks, Polly. You got it, guys. Have fun. Have a good tournament. Uh-huh. All right, there's Paul Doolin. Heart math, that is really cool. You're talking about that. I just got my my M Wave sensor in the mail this week, and I started working on it. So the week. sensor is uh, you put it, you hook it up to one of your um, your ear. 
and your finger or something, or is this your ear? Just your ear, and it attaches into your into your iPhone. And it's or, all, yeah, you use it on app, a, yeah or, an app on the uh, yeah. computer. Why and, don't you explain it there? Okay, well, the whole idea of heart math is to be able to get your body and your mind into this place of congruence. They call it coherence, but largely it's somewhat like meditating and mm. it's like to focus on breathing and what they what they they ask you to do is to feel like you're breathing through your heart and you put it together with say like some a really nice feeling or an image that brings you a sense of peace and it's just being able to so you have the um the sensor hooked up to your ear and it goes into your into your phone if you if you like and there's there's different ways to you put it in your computer or whatever but it gives you a a uh, real-time feedback. A visual what, feedback of what your breath is doing. Exactly. And, and, how, and, and, and how you're doing and gives you a score. And um, it's just a, a really nice, nice feeling when, you, when you're in that place of just <clears throat> allowing your, your breathing to just, you're really intentional and you feel it and it's nice and calm and slow and, uh, so what it does is it gives you an idea when, when I sat there with him for a half an hour and we were doing different exercises with this and I could see how my deep breath and my release of that breath slowed the, the visual output down. Mm-hmm. And cause it's one thing to say to somebody, you know, take a cleansing breath or maybe before you swing or putt or whatever it is you're doing. But when you see it and you can score it. You know, it's that competitive thing. You can kind of see, oh, if I, if I breathe out longer than I breathe in, then my, my, my score improves. My heart math improves. It, By the way, so I didn't, he was using it on the computer. You're going to use it on your phone? Yeah, yeah. You can just use it on your, That's cool. uh, on your iPhone. Yeah, and I'm sure. Probably. On the app. I'm sure he has it, too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's, it's, so anyone who's done meditation mm-hmm. will find it not that difficult. But where it's really interesting, like, so I was at the uh, Club Lake Academy um, yesterday, <clears throat> and uh, I was hitting some balls, and uh, I was agitated a little bit by something I was working on, and I just, I just started to focus on my breathing, and particularly feeling like I was breathing through my heart, and right away, my whole body just calmed right down, mm-hmm. and I had just, just a better sense of feel of the, of the club in my hands, and just being more present for the shot, and so it was. It was so. What it's doing, it's helping me with that learned skill of being able to just go to my breathing right away. And so, what it does is it helps you see it, score it, feel it. That's to me is always the key piece. Not to be thinking about thinking or thinking about see breathing. it, score it. What do you mean, score it? Well, it gives you a score. Oh, uh, right on the on the math. On right, the right, app. right. I thought you were talking about your swing. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, I've been doing some meditation the last couple of months. And in fact, last year, Paul got me hooked up with this company that has a uh, basically a head, uh, almost like a headphone um, meditation app. So, so it's not Focus Band? No, it's called Muse. Okay. Um, and fans of the Humble and Fred show, it's a different kind of Muse. But the, the idea is to control your breathing. And this headband, it's sort of like, it's almost like a little headphones that rise above, that ride above your ears. What it does is the same thing. It gives you some feedback showing you that, now what I was going to say about what, you, what happened to you at Club Link yesterday, it just goes to show you, if you can improve even slightly your physiological response to whatever, 
And in the in the golf world, it's you know you're not maybe you're working on something and it's not working. Even if you slightly improve your physiological response, how what what that does to the rest of your experience? I mean, it's amazing. Oh, absolutely, and that's where that's why sometimes when we talk about the mental game, or even this show is called Swing Thoughts. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So much of it is around mental skills and all that, but it's how we connect with our bodies. It's right. a physical game. That's huge. Yeah, what you just said is huge. It, it, it is a mental, it's a show about the mental side of golf, but it really is how your physical presence can really affect your mental performance. Yeah, I mean, you ever, just to get a, a, a real understanding of it, have you ever been talking with someone and let's say they're a little bit upset about something and they're talking about what happened with the girlfriend or whatever, and they're talking and then all of a sudden they kind of shudder and go, oh, and you go, that's it. That's called a truth response. And that starts in the body. And the body knows, the body's the core of, the feel, of your feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's, folks, if we can connect with our body, you can really connect with what's going on in your head and in your feelings and what's going to happen in your golf game. The problem with a lot of golfers is, and I'm even, even guys listening, is like, um, not everyone's ready to, you know, like again, I, I carry this list around with me. I've got this list that Paul gave me and it's, kind of the the foundation of what I do, you know, to get myself in the right place to play golf, even though, you know, it doesn't always work and it doesn't always work as well as you'd like and people still get mad and you still get frustrated, but at least it gives me something to go back to. Some of the stuff that we've been working on, it gives me something to go back to, but the biggest difference I'm, I think I can make, even at the level I'm at, is to, is to take better care of myself physically so that your mental acuity Whatever that is, whether it's around golf or any, anything else in your life, um, has a better chance. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Well, you're a serious golfer. You're actually on, there's a spiral, a thing called spiral dynamics, in which you can kind of look at where people are in sort of their state of consciousness. It sounds really out there, but you are at a high level of consciousness when it comes to golf in your life. A lot of people aren't. Um, and that's not to make judgment about them. I'm, I'm making how, judgments. It's how aware you are, no, where you really want to be in your life. Sure. So if it's important to you that to perform in golf, then you're going to take care of your nutrition, your hydration, your fitness. You're going to think about the mental game in conjunction with the technical swing part of the game. But if it doesn't mean that much to you, then you're not going to do it. And, and you know what? And I, and I say this to people, too, when it comes to, like... You know, there's so much I could tell you. Fred, who's my partner on the radio, was talking about when he was away, we took a week off, he was golfing with his buddy. And he said to me, we were talking about it on the show, he goes, I'm finally at the point now, I got so frustrated, I want to do something. And I think, you know, that's interesting. Because not everyone gets to that point. Like, I always say to people, listen, if you enjoy golf and you're shooting 105 and that's fun for you, then fine. And Have at, at it. At least enjoy that. Absolutely. But if you're shooting 105... Like the guy I played with in Mexico, and it's frustrating, and you still won't do anything about it, well, then that's a disconnect to me. Like, but that's part of what Paul said about the trap of golf, and, and it's the big... Ego. Think, ego. Well, it is, a, yes, it's ego, and even at the guy that's shooting 100 has some ego, and the problem is the ego is fed by the odd shot, and this guy I played with in Mexico hit some very good shots for, you know, he shot at 105, but man, he made good contact. It's that good contact that makes you frustrated that you can't do it all the time. But if you're not going to do anything to affect that outcome, 
then I think that's where the disconnect is too. Absolutely. And again, it's it, it's largely around ego. I should be able to do this. Yes. I should be able to do that. This is the expectation. I've been playing this long. I should be able to do this. And it's just a really weird minefield that people just get, they're, they're lost in it, but it's their, largely it's, they they want to play better, but they don't want to necessarily do, do the, the work. things. Exactly. They don't want that discomfort well, that Doolin was talking whatever about. Whatever work that is, forget the mental side. They want to play better, but they they then they know they should work in their short games. But again, it's not as much fun as hitting, I guess, full drivers on the range. Yeah, but I want to lose weight, but I don't want to change my eating habits. Exactly. I want to be more assertive in my relationship, but I don't want to stop and learn how to do it. So this guy's uh, we're playing. I'm playing with this guy. He's a friend of my brother's. He says and my brother was very nice. Set set up around. Uh, so this guy was his guest. Um, pretty good golf course. And we're on the, I don't know, 15th or 14th hole. So we've been hanging around. We know each other now, you know, as golfers do. And we're, you know, I can see where how he plays and he can see how I play. And so he says to me on this on the second shot of a par five, this is classic. Second shot of a par five is 245. And he says to me, I'm going to wait till the green clears. I go, oh, that's fine. You know, I'm your guest. You do what you want. Then he pauses and he says to me, what do you think I should do? And I'm like, well, because <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but he asked. He asked me point blank, what do you think? What do you think I should do? I said, well, I have a question for you. I said, do you want to play? I said, do you want to make par or do you want to see if you can hit the green? I said, because those are two different things. Great question. I said, if you want to make par, I think you should take your eight iron and try and lay up near, you know, somewhere short of the green and get on with your third shot and have a chance of par. I said, if you, and he could, he physically, even though he shot 105, he had the physical ability to one out of 150 times hit the green. I think he could have, or near it. And I, I just let that question hang there. And he said, well, you know, the old, you know, what's the, what is the one I love him guys say this? God didn't make uh, cowards or uh, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. what is that thing? Um, you only play once. Uh, laying up is for pussies or whatever the thing. Didn't, didn't come here to lay up. That's exactly. And so, of course, he, you know, takes out his three wood. I, I can, you can just imagine. I, I think he ended up making eight. But here, because he. Because as soon as you've got the, we were talking about, you got the three wood in your hand. He duffed it behind a tree. So not only did he not, not only did he hit a horrible shot, did he hit a horrible shot? But it was a horrible shot in a bad a spot he couldn't recover from. By the time he got to the green, it was all over. And you know, but that's the question I think everyone has to ask themselves: Do you want to make your best score, or do you want to just hit hit shots? Because if it's, and I think it's okay. The point, my piece would be, it's okay to just hit the shot. You know. Because when I'm playing around, goofing around with you, or it's in a round that I don't think really matters, I might give myself, I might challenge myself in a situation where if I was playing for score, I wouldn't hit that shot. But I'm aware of it. It's why you play the game. It always comes down to that. And I don't think people ask themselves that question enough, is why do they play? So the guy who you're playing with shoots 105. If he's okay with that, and he, you know, every once in a while he pulls that shot off, and wow, he feels great and mm-hmm. celebrates it. Good for him, absolutely. But it really depends on you know. But if you if you have a sense of you want to master this game somewhat, and that score is important, and you, it's a way to kind of see the progress you're making, and you want to see how you do against par, whether you buy into that or not, it doesn't really matter. 
but it's what you have set your intention, mm-hmm. which is direct, which is connected straight to why do you play this game? So uh, the first time uh, I'm gonna, we're, we have a couple of stories, and then we're going to wrap things up. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to our podcast. It's going to be on iTunes now, as it has been. Uh, you just if you give us a little rating, it uh, sends us up. Uh, just makes us a little bit easier to find a review. A review would be great. So we'll talk about the first time I played golf with Tim. And then I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story that happened to me when I was playing in Mexico last week. So I had uh, we'd been hanging around a little bit. Tim and I were talking about the mental side of golf and working, you know, maybe working on some stuff together. But we had never actually played golf together. And uh, I was unaware that you had been struggling for some time with possibly the most bizarre thing that can happen to a golfer, and that's you were shanking your irons every so often. Yep. Absolutely. So we we had been hanging out for probably six months or five months, and we go to the golf course, and you had sort of an idea how I play, and I had really no idea how you play, although I knew your handicap was around you know five or six, so I have a sense of what that what what that looks like, and we warmed up, everything seemed fine, and then uh, and then why don't you take it from there? <laughs> well, uh, I think I hit my first drive, just real sweet drive, good shot, and then for the next sixteen holes. I did not, I hit, I shanked every iron, every iron for 16 holes. No, I don't think it was after the first hole. Was it? I think it was. It was. It was, it was it, maybe the first hole you got. You through. know, I think I've tried to repress this memory, pal. But, I, no, I uh, think. I think, I think what really, happened is you got through the you're first hole. You're it back up, and I have to relive oh, the please. horror again. Don't be so dramatic. <laughs> but it was. I, 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 I was. The reason I think that's important is because I didn't notice it right away. Maybe I maybe I maybe I didn't. But you should. Um, but but for very many holes after it first appeared, it never went away. That's right. And, and that was last year. And I observed this. Um, well, you had some observations about me as a as a golfer, not as a golf player, but for me, it was. I didn't know what to do. It was like, wow, I've never seen this before. I've never seen a good player, a five handicap do that and so at first i you know it was kind of like i don't know what to say and that, i'd never suffered that i that had never happened to me before every once in a while um like never that many in a row never i mean every once in a while would, to me i i equate it like the shanks is like every once in a while it's like a you know you know, nice little old lady going down the street, and suddenly a purse snatcher comes out of the alley, grabs the purse, <laughs> and gone. And like, what the heck happened? Uh, but I'd never had it sustained like that before. And what was interesting to me is that um, there was nothing really leading up to that. I didn't feel weird uh, physically. Uh, I had nothing going on that way. I maybe had a degree of nervousness around. Uh, playing for once you know and maybe subconsciously i was concerned how you might judge me and i think that that's a a natural thing to do 100 percent, absolutely natural how how am i going to fit in i mean we're social beings that happens um so i don't really know what happened but i just know it was and i tried to bizarre i didn't know when it was time to step in and say you know hey because I, I have some skill around golf swing. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I have a, a you're a scratch handicap, pal. You've played in like you know Canadian. Well, for people who haven't listened to the show, or yeah, this guy's played in Canadian amateur championships. He's won his club championship. But no, I, and I appreciate. He knows that. what to do. He knows. But I mean, I have a, I have a, also a, a, a good skill around observing other people's golf games. Yep. 
And I got to be honest, for the first time in my life, I, I, I at one point was going to go and Google it because I really didn't have a sense of why it was happening. Were you flummoxed? A little bit. Only in around, well, a couple things. I didn't know if it's my place to step and I didn't know if this is something that happens to you. I didn't know. I was also a little bit concerned that I didn't have an idea. <laughs> I mean, l- listen, if you start block cutting your five iron off the fairway. I got a thousand reasons why is that why that happens. Yep. I can watch where your ball goes and give you a pretty good pretty good indication is you know, is it ball position? Is it you know, are you are you taking it back to inside? There's a lot of things that I could but I didn't have anything really to say to you. I gave I gave a couple of you know marginal suggestions, but it was about six None or of which work. Well, it was the thing is I I didn't know when it was time to step in and go, hey, new friend, uh, that's weird. <laughs> but mostly, what I observed that day and why I thought you might be a person of value um, when it came to helping me is because I and at one point I finally remarked to you, I said, dude, I got to tell you, I'm so impressed with you, and you said, why? I said, because if this was me in this situation, and I meant everything, all you described, you know, we're me, we're playing for the first time. You, you might have been a little bit concerned about how you were going to show up with me. I, I remember saying to you, do you remember I said that that was one of the most impressive things I've ever seen? Because that were, if that were me, I don't know that I would have been able to react with such equanimity. And I think that's the thing I would pull a, away from that story is that you were so good. You were such a good partner to play with, even though you were shanking it. <laughs> it, was, it was comical. Oh my well, it was so weird. It was bizarre. Because you'd hit it off the tee like a five handicap. And then as soon as you had anything that wasn't wooden or, you know, <laughs> the metal wood in your hand, it was like, what is happening? <laughs> Partly, and I think we were playing with, a, I can't remember if we, were, we did play with the cup other people. I think the rest of us were hoping that we wouldn't catch it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I think when, no, I'd never no. seen anyone. Sh- I'd never. I might. I think I've shanked. I have three shanks lifetime. I was just hoping like, man, if I see this, is it like when you're like, per se, you're, that you worship the devil. All of a sudden you're a devil worshiper. I don't know how that works. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, thank you. Um, but it was impressive. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, so I'll take that in. So thanks. Thanks a lot. The The only thing I could kind of say to that is that. At a certain stage around around golf, and I think I've seen this in a lot of people, is that um, it's not so much around the score. It's not so much around how am I going to show up. I've been through enough things in my life to know what's important, and it, and the score wasn't that important. And this was just – it just doesn't affect me that much anymore what happens to me on the golf course. And the interesting thing about that is that I play – Last year, I played the best golf of my life, and largely because uh, I can accept things better, and I just think it's almost like if you've suffered a little bit in your life through certain things, then you know what it's like, and you know what's really important, and that I was shanking it that day, I don't know. It's hard to put it into into words, because I was... um, it's hard to sometimes put these things into sort of a conscious mind, but it was just to say that really didn't bother me that much. Well, I tell you what, I'm 99 people out of 100 that that would have happened to probably wouldn't have made it past the ninth hole. Um, when, whenever you started shanking, the reason you said for 16th holes, it was around the 16th hole that after we had started to maybe 
sort of jam a few things it might be. And I started to think, okay, well, what could it be? You know, there's a few little check marks. You know, are you standing too close to the ball? Are you, is the ball in the wrong spot? Are you aimed incorrectly? And, and once we went through a bunch of that stuff that didn't work, you know, I, I, when I say a bunch, maybe it was two or three suggestions. Then all of a sudden you found it. And for the last two and a half holes, whenever it was, you just hit it pure again. Like it was, it was a little bit odd. Well, I think I remember on the 16th, uh, it was at Glencairn in, uh, near Milton. And I think I just went, I want to feel the freest swing I can make. I want to really feel a free swing. Because I'd made a really good pass at it on the previous, uh, with the drive. I just really nailed my drive. Mm-hmm. And it felt free. And I just went with that feeling. And, um, yeah. Well, it, for some, whatever it, it was, they went away. For the last two and a half holes, you just hit your irons like a... Mm-hmm. Sort of a normal person, not afflicted by this. Yeah, heinous, but it, so, so by, yeah, by this hate is afflicted. Debil- word, <laughs> debilitating Absolutely, disease. Absolutely, yeah. But you know, if anything had to come around that, is that I think that subconsciously, I had um, I was concerned about how our first game would go. Sure. And would you take me seriously, working with you as your coach and as a player? And I tightened up. And, and, think, and the irony is, because of the way you acted, I thought, wow, this guy, it, I, I literally thought to myself, this guy can teach me something. Because if I had shanked, you know, 16 irons in a row, I would have killed myself, probably. I would have buried the putter in my head. Um, okay, so I've got to tell you, quickly, this, is a, this, this last part will be a uh, Howard and Tim coaching session. I'm not even sure I, it's so much a, about a coaching, what you can feed back to me, but I'll, just, I'll, say, I'll tell you this story just to show you that after as many years as I've been working on this indirectly and, and the last couple years of working on this directly, that I still can fall back into old patterns, but the difference is now I have found some, through Tim and Paul, some, um, um, what I'm thinking, a method, or I found some things that I can go to, some skills. skills. Thank you. I think I woke up this morning a few uh, words less than I had yesterday. <laughs> I have some theories as to why. Are they but draining <laughs> out as you get older? Yeah, no. I got some theories as to why. And but you're that's, not even drinking. What is I'm it? not. <clears throat> 70 days? 7 yeah, I'm on a 70-day booze hiatus. Wow. No, so, strength of character. Well, not only that, dude. I was at a, I did a job last week. So for four days last week, I was in Mexico working. I was working on a conference. And then three days, I got to hang out and play golf. I didn't drink in Mexico. All-inclusive. Hard rock. Cam- it was in... Buddy, forget wow. a mini bar. I had like a bar. You know how they take full bottles and turn them upside down on that apparatus, the free pour thing? I had that in my room. It was ridiculous. So there's ALF level of equanimity, ALF Cal Hill, and then we have have humble level of control. Yeah, I'm a control freak, though. So... Oh, that's our other issue we got to work on. Yeah, no, but you know, it's funny. I really really do have some control issues. Um, And it's good (laughs) in certain ways. Like, that's one of the reasons I love flying airplanes, because I love to be the person in control. It's funny, because I was talking to somebody about... They were telling me that they they sky they went skydiving, and almost every pilot I know thinks skydiving is stupid. He said, "Why?" I said, "Why would you jump out of a perfectly good plane?" It just seems <laughs> seems, seems dumb. But it's the lack of control. People that are skydivers are fine losing a little bit of control. Although they're in control of their descent, obviously. I think that's part of the fun of it. So. I go down there working for a pretty big client, and then the client and I are talking through the process, and he finds out I'm a golfer, and he so 
when the conference was over on the Thursday, the vice president of this company and two of the main directors and I play golf. And and all the way to the golf course, he's telling them, you know, Howard has some golf background and good player, good player and uh, all that stuff. And I can, you know, generally handle that. I'm, you know, I'm, again, I'm I'm fine with that spotlight. But it it was interesting. Warmed up well. I've never played the course. Uh, we're, and th- these guys are, they're decent players, probably 10 to 15 handicaps. They all shot in the low 90s, you know, but hit it really nicely. And I could see watching them warm up. Uh, everything's fine. And I don't know what it was. Oh, it's a, I, I know what I was going to say. We're only playing it from about 63 or 6,400 yards. So I'm not even having to hit a lot of drivers. Mm-hmm. So for the first six holes, I'm hitting irons off tees and three woods, and I'm just bogeying every hole the strange thing is i just can't seem to find the green i'm I'm hitting fairways ish i'm not really hitting the ball great not hitting it bad i start off bogey double bogey 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 and i'm on the seventh tee and i'm six over par no i'm sorry i'm seven over par after six holes but i gotta tell you somewhere around hole three four and five i start to feel the pressure of and and I know the question I keep asking myself is what pressure, but the idea that I, this guy has, you know, these guys are expecting me to be a good player. Now, anyone can see that I have a golf swing that looks like a scratch golf, right? Tee off in the first hole and the, the starter the Mexican guy is going, oh, this guy can play. You can see that I know what I'm doing, but I can't make par. Mm-hmm. And Tim, I got to tell you, it was weird. I kept like now hole three and four. I'm like four over after three and I'm five over after four. And I'm thinking, I may not make par. <laughs> I may yeah, yeah, not yeah. make a par. Yeah. The one weird thing that showed up, though, is I, I, I was putting great. Like the putts for pars I had in all these holes and the putts for bogey and the one I made double. They were I just they were rolling beautifully, and I kept saying to myself, "Wow, I'm gonna at some point these are gonna go in because I'm just I'm missing twenty footers by an inch. I'm lipping every eight footer." Mm-hmm. But I gotta tell you, I've started feeling it in my body, and I thought, "Isn't this odd?" After all the work I've done, the fact that I'm worried about what these guys think of me is showing up here, first round of the year. I mean, yeah. I got a million excuses, right? Yeah. And somewhere around the fourth or fifth hole, I said to myself, this is insane. Um, I got to just stop this. And, I, and I, had, I said, you might not make a part today. So what? You know, it's not going to affect, you know, these guys. I just did a conference for them. They love me. They think I'm competent. You know, my ego has been is full up. You know, it's topped up. And uh, somewhere around the fifth hole, and I was starting to warm up a little bit. I was swinging a little better. I just started to breathe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I just started to slow my pace down a little bit. I said, okay, I'll, I'll just go back to what I know. I'm going to focus on the target more. I'm not going to worry about the fact that I'm six over after five. And I bogeyed the sixth hole. So it doesn't matter, but I sort of feel like, okay, at least now, at least I'm going to control what I can control. I can't control whether these guys think I'm a good player or not or whether I shoot 95 or not. And at the point I let it go, I parred the next 12 holes in a row. Now, I want you to know something. I would have been fine if I hadn't. And the fact that I would have been fine if I hadn't, if I, if I came back and the story ended, I shot 93, it was, a good, it was a good bit of learning for me because around hole four, five, and six, I noticed it was bothering me. Around five, six, I started to go, okay. Just let this go. And this isn't that big a deal. What these guys think of you as a golfer isn't going to affect the rest of your you know, day, your life, your whatever. And I, I know it's a better story that I shot 79. 
But being seven over after six and and learning what I've learned helped me par the next 12 holes in a row. Because once I did, it was almost like, not that I felt normal again. And oh, now, because when I parred, you know, the seventh, eighth, and ninth holes, it wasn't like all of a sudden now I'm a much better player. Yeah, after I parred the next, when I was even on the back, they were like, wow, you can really play. But I... I and I sort of, you know, I was sort of trying to be demur and go, well, you know what they say in golf, eventually everyone's handicap shows up. Yeah. But it's true. Eventually it will. Mm-hmm. I think what, what I'm trying to tell you as your student is that, you know, I, I recognized it was happening to me, which was number one. And I recognized it pretty early. Like after I go bogey, double bogey to start the round, I'm like, hmm, that's weird. When I make the next couple of bogeys, I go, you know, I'm sort of saying to myself, well, this is ridiculous. But at least I recognize that there was an issue. And how I dealt with it was to accept it, to control some things I knew I could control, you know, take a few more, you know, take a few bigger breaths, you know, keep my, be a little bit more focused on the target. You know, even though it didn't matter, I thought, okay, I'm going to try and hit it there, wherever there is. And it just all kind of fell into place. Well, that's how our coaching sessions usually go. I listen for a while, and then it's like I start to ask questions. So what do you think went on when you went into, went into the game? Like, Did you have like expectations of how you're going to play, given you'd worked through the winter and different things are going on? Did you have like a, an uh, expectation? About how around? I was going to hit it? Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, the funny thing is, the reason I thought I'd bring it up to, to admit to everyone that it happens to me as well is that I think... I had no expectations around how I was going to hit it because I had been working on some stuff and like even I could tell on the range that I was feeling pretty good. It was the first balls I'd seen out into the world yeah. in three months and I was pretty happy with how they were going. It was the idea that he told them that I was a really good golfer. Yeah. It was just that. And it just, I, even though I tried to let it go, I had that hanging around me. When I started bogey, double bogey, 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 mm-hmm. like that was it. And I think, you know, that's a good lesson for everyone that those things, if you admit, if you, if you recognize them the same way that the reason I told that I wanted to tell the shank story first is because, you know, you had some expectations of how you wanted to show up around me, uh, a, a guy that you, you know, had gotten to know, but that's our first time playing golf together. It's so hard to play this game with other people but we want to because we're social beings and we're concerned how are we going to be perceived Mm -hmm. really and it's really easy to tell somebody you know don't listen to your mind to be concerned about how you're going to be judged really easy to say harder to freaking do Mm -hmm. but it always starts with around awareness i think you talked about it you could feel you were as you're talking you were making this circular motion and you could and to me so that was like tightness Mm -hmm. and you could feel it on my chest i could feel it in my in my core that i wasn't that i was worried or thinking and you know again i there i am i'm i'm been talking about the mental you know side of golf all winter on this show and all of a sudden here i am now confronted with it Exactly. So how, so we talked about it earlier. Your body tells you what's going on. Mm-hmm. So you felt the fear, really what it was, is that you weren't going to meet their expectations. So, so there's a degree of fear. How am I going to be judged? So that shows up as tightness. Mm-hmm. And once you became aware of that, and then you started to work on letting it go, working on your breathing. Yeah, 100%. Just feeling it better. And so... When you have these awarenesses, these things come to mind. It's not like flipping a switch. 
It can take a few holes for things to go because you're changing your whole body chemistry. Everything in terms of your heart rate, the, all co- the congruence you have in your whole body as a, as really an organism. It's well, no, really and weird. what you said about uh, what you said about it taking a couple holes, you know, I think we can all relate to the experience of you know some days you just can't seem to find the face of the club, and it takes a few hits where you've found center or center-ish contact, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden, ah, there it is again. Well, it's the same for the mental side. Right, because it's a whole, it's it's the whole package, man. Well, think about <laughs> Mind this. Mind and body and physical ball, physical club, and I think that if there's anything that we can really put across today is that it's, if we could connect with what's going in on, in our body, we'll then know, that'll give us a clue what we're feeling emotionally and what's going on in our heads. Well, I can't be the only one that's ever been in a situation and I think a lot of us go through it where, you know, you feel like you should be playing better based on, you know, your, the guys you're playing with or they make, make a comment, hey, you're not up to your usual game. But it was somewhere around the fourth or fifth hole I started to think, okay, I better, I better, not better. That's not the way I thought about it. I thought, okay, this is happening. What can I do? What do I know to do to make this different? What skills can I draw what on? What skills can I draw on? And also accepting the fact that, the big lesson learned for me, the big lesson for me was I have to be okay if this, if I never make another par today. And I thought, okay, are you okay with that? Because really, what do I care? What, well, these, what do I care what these dudes think of me as a golfer? I played in the Canadian Amateur. Your story. And I say that as a joke. Yeah, but, but your story connects perfectly with the Shank story because it doesn't matter Really, no. I, mean, I mean, no matter what Howard Glassman does on the golf course or Tim O'Connor does on a golf course, score does not define who I am, whether I'm a good person or a bad person or whether I'm competent or or I'm an all-star. It doesn't freaking matter. And that's the first thing I, I sort of came to awareness after sort of, you know, again, three or four holes going by. And I'm like, well, this is kind of awkward. And then I realized, you know, it doesn't really matter. You've just, I've just worked with these guys for the last couple months. I've just done four days for their company. I know I'm getting hired back. They it really a, like you. They already like me. Absolutely. Now, so it took a couple holes for me to make my first par. You know, somewhere around the fifth, fourth or fifth hole, I recognize it. Around the sixth hole, I make some physiological changes. I may have slowed down a little bit. You know, I realized I'd kind of been rushing my second shots to the... It was a pretty short course for me, so I wasn't hitting any... It wasn't like I was going into greens with two irons. You know, I was missing greens with nine irons and wedges and not getting up and down. And then I just, you know, hit an okay drive in the seventh hole and hit the green. I'm like, okay. Oh, I'm, I you know, almost made a birdie because I'd been the weird thing I said, I've been putting really good. And I played another round on Saturday and I putted ridiculously well. So I was really happy with that because I've been working on some stuff. Our little drill that I did. Amazing. Right. Just the, putting the ball. Drill with putting the, drill. Where, that's where you look at the dimples. You or just, just look at something on the ball. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my just my uh, the ball was rolling. It just I could tell from the first hole, even on the, the, the crappy round, it just looked like everything was going to go in. And then on the second round, everything went in. It was absurd. <laughs> so after I'd made a couple of pars, obviously, I start to calm down and I start to r- relax, relax. And then, you know, again, it's a great story because I shoot 79 after being seven over after six. But you know what? I've done that before. That's another thing I drew on. I've been seven over par. I've been six over par after four or five holes. You know, the reason I have a lower handicap is it's not going to last. You also reaffirmed your belief system. You've been through this. Good evidence. Yeah, absolutely. You've got evidence. You've done it before. And for a while, you weren't really going, like, what's going on here? Your your belief in yourself, your confidence was, was gone. Yes. But 
actually you know what you know what's really there so you hang in and you take you you apply the skills that you've learned around awareness and what you really need to do and eventually it comes around. Well, and if the thing I was also confident was, A, I wasn't being, you know, I wasn't pouting and I wasn't moping. I was still being a good partner with these guys. We we're having fun. We we're joking around. They wouldn't have known. They probably wouldn't have noticed any difference in my body language between the first six holes and the last 12. Uh, and I was happy with that. I was pretty proud of the fact that I wasn't acting any different once I was even par for a bunch of holes and when I was, you know, seven over after six. Absolutely. Um, but it was in the in the end. It was a, you know again. I thought I, would, I couldn't wait to get back to tell you that you know there was a great piece of evidence that you know you sort of build up uh, through practice a little bit of a skill set you can draw on. Just like you know, just like after hitting a thousand bunker shots, you've got some evidence that you can you can do that. That's uh, I, there's, that's just a perfect analogy. All right. Well, let's end on that because I know that Tim and I both have to pee. Um, this is probably one of our longest ones, but that's fine. Um, Tim O'Connor, tim.oconnor.org.something. What is it? O'ConnorGolf.ca. Right. O'ConnorGolf.ca. I'm come up with a jingle, and I think I'm going to have like... O'ConnorGolf.ca. Yeah, well, those, the people, they sing it. Now, really sing it now, and they take it up a note. I hate no. that commercial. Oh, my God. Um, I got to go. Uh, Humble and Fred Radio. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook, and uh, we'll see you next week.